guys, welcome back to the Relax Running Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. Super glad that you tuned in for another week, whether you're in your car or out on a run. I hope this one's really interesting for you. I know it certainly was for me. It's a great part of my week sitting down with, whether it's an Olympian or national record holder, or in this case, just a wizard of a sports doctor with Johnny Quinn. It's uh, it's always something I like to sit down, reflect on, and uh, apply to my own running. Though I'm not that competitive anymore, I still like to improve the, the little parts of it that I can. So if you haven't heard from John Quinn before, you are in for an absolute treat. This guy is... Uh, he originally worked with uh, Kevin Sheedy at the Essendon Football Club from, gee, 1998 to 2008. Does that sound about right? I might have had those dates muddled up. And then he went up to the Gold Coast and worked with him, uh, the Gold Coast, GWS, that's Sydney. He moved up to Sydney to work with the GWS Giants and their fitness program there. So this guy is an absolute wealth of knowledge. He's worked alongside a number of sprinters. He's very passionate about technique. Um, and just efficiency in running. He helps open our eyes to so many of the little things that we ignore about uh, ignore when it comes to improving our running performance. So I think you're really going to get a lot out of this. Johnny Quinn is a highly requested guest on this podcast. So um, please, if you're enjoying them, uh, let us know. Otherwise, just shoot us through an email and, and let me know who you'd like to hear from. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, would super appreciate you jumping on the iTunes store. So iTunes app, you know, wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a little review. Only if it's nice. Don't go and do it if it's if it's mean. As I always say, it just helps us reach more, reach more ears, reach more eyes, help people find the podcast. So that'd be greatly appreciated, guys. If you're not already a member of the Relax Running membership, check it out. We've got a three day free trial. If you haven't heard about it before, here's what it is. Originally, it was a, a little place where I just posted members bonus podcasts but i've expanded that to include a broader range of people so we're, we're putting up regular training programs from the 5k to the marathon uh when i say regular training programs we're putting up the most recent one was a 28 day challenge and then we've got seven days of strength uh, i've got a, a mobility one coming soon i've got a breathing one coming soon it's it's a big library of, of different training programs to target every area of your running performance we've also got some bonus videos up there with experts in the field of distance running answering the member only questions if you do like it it's 10 bucks us a month to stay on board with you can cancel anytime so check that out at relaxrunning.com that one is the relax running membership apart from that guys i uh i'm going to get out of your way and introduce to you the exercise physiologist i'm going to say the best australia has to offer dr john quinn I tried to give a bit of an introduction as to who you are and exactly what you do. And mm. uh, I think in comparison to the first conversation we had where uh, you explained to me how you found yourself in the position that you're in now with your coaching and your guidance and your mentoring of so many athletes, I probably failed miserably. So I was, I was hoping for the uh, uh, first time, John Quinn audience, you might be able to give them a bit of an overview on yourself and you know how you mm-hmm. found yourself in the field you're in now. Yeah, well, thanks, Tyson. I've um, been coaching now for more than 35 years. Um, I grew up in country New South Wales um, in, in the town back in those days. You didn't have many choices for sport, and rugby league was my, my sport, and I played from the age of six to the age of 20, even coached a junior team and refereed. And it was through coaching the junior team, I saw that one of the boys there was quite fast, and the only redeeming feature I had for rugby league was that I was quicker than the average player as well. But I said to this guy, look, I reckon you should get being coached for running. And he goes, you think so? I said, oh, absolutely. And he goes, oh, that's fantastic. Well, when do you want me to bring him in? And that's how I became an athletics coach. So I was about 20 years of age and I thought I'd better get qualified for this. So I went off and did my level one track and field coaches uh, certificate and really just got out of control from that point on. So since that time, I've uh, done my full accreditations up to level five with, uh, well, in those days, Australian Track and Field Coaches Association. But I've also been to university. I've done a, uh, a degree in sports coaching and exercise physiology. I've done a master's in science and technology, and I've done postgraduate work in uh, nutrition, and I've supervised several PhDs around decision-making for sport. 
So all of those things have got out of uh, out of hand, I suppose. But the running foundation for me led me into all sorts of different sports. So I've been so fortunate. I've never really worked a day in my life working from Little Athletics in New South Wales, which gave me a great base of understanding developmental aspects of sport through to them working for the Australian Institute of Sport where I got sent on a secondment down to Tasmania as part of the Tasmanian Institute of Sport and developing a program down in Tasmania as track and field for six years. But I was able to travel the world with that and see some of the best sporting setups and institutions around the world. And then being headhunted to go to Essendon, I'd never seen a game of AFL when I first went to the Bombers. And being there and uh, being able to implement ideas from around the world into the sport of AFL. And I wasn't there, obviously, to teach them how to kick a footy or mark a footy. I still can't do it, to be honest. But it was about teaching them how to get into position better and how to recover faster, how to be stronger, how to jump faster, uh, higher, and so on. So my skills from uh, all the things I'd learnt before, I was able to bring into the Bombers and, and then keep developing those. And after a decade there, moved out of that and set up my own business in Melbourne, um, in a clinical setting as an exercise physiologist, but I was also fortunate to be able to consult to other sports and primarily then it was to the Socceroos and I travelled and was involved with um, friendly matches that they had with Kuwait and Bahrain and got to uh, know the coach of the Socceroos very well, Graham Arnold, and it was a fabulous time for soccer in Australia with you know some of the, the great names in uh, Viduka and Cool and so on. And look, it was just a great experience. I also had the opportunity to go to India for cricket and went to India for several months as part of the Indian Cricket League and learned all of those things. But worked with um, as diverse as um, the Formula One motor racing uh, around hydration and that type of thing through to uh, uh, footballers needing to get back for rehab and uh, obviously still in track and field, never really moved out of there. Then out of the blue, get an opportunity to come to Sydney to set up a football club. And after I'd been at... Essendon for so long, the whole thing of the DNA of Essendon, for someone who'd never been involved with AFL, I totally respect the history and the traditionalism that is Essendon. So the opportunity to come and start a club from the ground up and just the romance, I think, that in a 100 years from now, no matter what happens with the club over the next 100 years, I'll always have been involved with the club from day one uh, with one of the greatest coaches in the country, Kevin Sheedy. And, uh, you know, that was just an opportunity too big to say no to. So I relocated up here to Sydney and was in that role, had a few ups and downs with my own personal health. And uh, after eight years, a bit over eight years with the Giants, I've now moved out of that. And uh, I've got my own business going here and I'm consulting to um, I'm a casual academic at University of Technology. And uh, I'm working at a private school here in Sydney called the Scott College, an outstanding private school. And uh, I work with the boys here, just 27 boys in Year 12 on an applied entrepreneurship program. And I'm their mentor and coach, come in and sit down one-on-one with them each week. And uh, that's probably one of my favourite gigs, to be quite honest. And um, I've still got my clinic work. I work at a clinic in Double Bay at Sports Lab. I come down to Melbourne to work at South Yarra Spine and Sport once a month. Um, a bit of consulting on the side. And then... On top of that, I've got my own squad, and uh, athletics has always been my lifeblood. And uh, I've got uh, a fabulous squad. I'm reluctant to say that uh, it's the best squad I've ever had. I think I say that every year because they always seem like that. You've got to be careful when you fall in love with your athletes, and uh, I invariably do. But uh, my squad at the moment, I'm just loving it, and uh, uh, predominantly sprinters. And I've got some uh, high achieving athletes and athletes with. Um, particular needs. I've got three refugees in my squad and so it goes way beyond just uh, putting one foot in front of the other. It's about uh, making sure they've literally got a roof over their head and food on the table and uh, and, uh, and a purposing life. So um, yeah, my, my life plate is pretty full but um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Mm, I'll tell you what, it sounds, I remember the first time I met you down at the Sport and Spine Centre at South Yarra, you gave me a glimpse into your diary and uh, the diary makes a whole lot more sense now after hearing everything that you've got to plan. I, I admired how many things you had written on the page and thought, I'm going to have to go home and add more things into my daily schedule because I've got too much free time. I should I should take a photo of my diary now. It's right in front of me and it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there's not too many white spaces left on there. But uh, <laughs> no, I like that. People ring me and ask me, you know, 
would you be able to? And I'd say, yes, I can do that. You know, because you mightn't get the opportunity to do that later. So I'd just say yes, and, uh, and I'll work it into the, into there. So, um, you know, I like to be involved with different programs and with different people. And, uh, yeah, there's a few exciting opportunities coming up as well in and around the space of coaching um, in, in athletics and also uh, being involved with different programs going forward. So we'll talk about that another day. But, yeah, there's always something coming and uh, there's always, you know, something to look forward to and build towards. Yeah, I, I put a couple of asterisks next to a few of the things we touched on in our uh, first public podcast, Quinny, because I felt like I rushed over them a little bit too mm-hmm. quickly. And um, I, I've read a little more about you since we did record that podcast and seen how much uh, you've got to say and teach on the particular issues. And one of the things that stood out to me was it's it's interesting, I think, for a lot of distance runners to hear from um, you know someone who like yourself who who predominantly works with sprinters that has so much which trans. Uh, through the distances, whether that's 200 metres, five, mm. uh, 5K, all the way up to the marathon. And, and one of the things that I had an asterisk on during that first conversation was uh, the muscle imbalances that you often see in distance runners who come into your clinic. And I thought if there was one thing that I'd love to be able to help equip distance runners with, it's just that ability to be able to develop and maintain consistency in their training. And if this is something that seems to uh, be a, a common issue that you're dealing with. I'd love just to delve into, you know, first of all, what we mean by muscle imbalances mm. and how that can affect the um, overall training performance and, uh, and injury likelihood and, you know, sure. just longevity in the sport. Well, it's interesting. You know, like I, I said there early on that I did a little bit of work with Jensen Button. It was around hydration because they get so hot in the cockpit of the car. And they were asking, you know, about ways to manage that their hydration status, which impacts on decision making. But when you talk about Formula One motor racing, they spend an absolute fortune on those those cars. They are the pinnacle of performance and speed and power in in motor racing. And it comes down to that absolute precision. But what they learn from that goes down into the car that's in everybody's driveway that's listening to this. What they learn out of Formula One motor racing and motor racing in general helps develop the cars of tomorrow. And in looking at that um, absolute pinnacle, we get the product that we understand. I look at athletics a little bit like that, and I, I don't mean it in any disrespectful way because I think the endurance fraternity, the amount of training they do and how much work they do, Absolutely mind-blowing phenomenal. But in terms of being the Formula One cars, they are not. The Formula One of your 100-metre prima donnas that prance around and punts around out there and strut around, but it's all about precision. It's all about power and it's about timing and about balance and the expression of movement. It's about grace. It's all of those things. They are the Formula Ones. If you can encapsulate that, and bring that back to the distance runner, whether that be the happy fun runner on the weekend running 10K or our super marathon runner. It's the same thing. If I've got my, using the analogy of a car again, if I've got my car and I'm driving along and it's got a wheel imbalance, it may be imperceptible at 60 kilometres an hour, but when I get up to 80, it starts to get a little bit of a shake. If I get up to 100, it's shaking even more. Well, I look at that. I can look at my 100-metre sprinters and you can see where these muscular imbalances are impacting on their performance and invariably will lead to an injury. It may not be quite as obvious to, say, a half-marathoner or an ultra-endurance athlete, but those imbalances are still there. And over time, the consequence is going to be, if not the same, it's probably going to be greater. It'll wear down. It may be not quite as obvious but they're still there. So what you can learn from your Formula One athlete is how can we move better? How can we be more efficient in the way that we move? And that invariably comes, in my experience, to looking at muscular imbalance in the body and getting that balanced and sorted out, getting the synergy between upper and lower, left to right, and getting that balance right. It's not just about putting one foot in front of the other. It's about putting in front of the other with precision. That's how I would see distance runners. 
Yeah, sure. So these imbalances that come up, is this just through misuse over time where um, your foot landing in a particular way has just overdeveloped a particular muscle and slightly, you know, thrown out the alignment? Or is this shoes or genetics or all of the it's above? Like where all, all of the above. All of the above. So it can be genetics. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've got a couple of athletes in my squad that are African. So they seem to have a, a pelvis that's tilted forward and two tilted pelvis. Well, you're not going to change it in terms of the genetics, and that's actually part of the reason I believe they run that way. But genetics has a role in their movement. Um, it, likewise, with you know your bone length is going to impact on how you run. That's just genetics. However, if you were playing soccer when you were a 14 year old and you got tackled, side tackled, and it hit your knee, and you didn't rehabilitate that properly, you may have recovered from the injury, but you're going to carry that. Uh, change in gait and you move forward. And to, if that's leading to injuries, then you have to go back and rehabilitate that injury and then pick it back up. But I, I just, this thing about, I, I've been involved with the study of hydration now for many years. And when you look at the human body, we're predominantly made up of water. Now, if a drop of rain falls out of the sky and lands on the side of a hill, the law of gravity tells me that drop of water is going to go down the hill. If there's a great big rock there, it's either going to go around that rock, over the rock, or through the rock. And invariably, it'll go around the rock. And if you're ever in a plane and you look out and you can see the ground below, you'll see how nature has carved the river and how it just flows, and it follows the path of least resistance. That's the law of nature. Well, we are predominantly water. And if you've got an injury, let's call it a rock, then your body will follow the path of least resistance. It doesn't care about whether you look like a, a, a technical model for movement. All it's worried about is you want to get from point A to point B. And if you've got tightness in your low back or glute, and it means that you've got to move your leg in a certain manner to facilitate forward movement, then so be it. Let's just follow the path of least resistance. If you keep doing that over time, then that becomes your pattern. That becomes your riverbed that you're looking at out of the plane when you're when you're travelling, so yes, it, it becomes your pattern. That becomes your trademark, if you like, your technical model. But I believe that you can change that, and I believe that you can. The sooner you can address it, the better. And if people have injuries, no matter how small or insignificant that injury might be, you must rehabilitate that properly. Not just get over the initial injury, the uh, the scarring and the the tear, if you like but also make sure you get your movement mechanics back in and take your time. Don't rush back into the injury. Get the movement patterns right because if you don't, you know, you'll learn the lesson the hard way because the other injuries other injuries will manifest. Mm, sure. So, uh, I, I, Quinny, like any distance running audience of you know over a few hundred people, I, I know there'd be plenty of people listening to this who uh, the message of imbalance is probably striking a chord because they've constantly dealt with you know injuries and niggles and just little pains that are stopping them from moving efficiently or even moving at all when it comes to their ability to be able to get out the door and run. So, yeah. are there are there any um, uh, uh, apart from pain and apart from uh, you know, just soreness. Are there anything that these people should be looking out for? Is there anything they can look at um, that they might be able to do a little self-assessment to diagnose, okay, well, I, I clearly need to have some work done to, you know, the way things are operating if I'm going to be able to move forward effectively in the future? Absolutely. You, I, I'll get um, athletes that I work with or patients in the clinic to just take a photo of yourself from front on, from side on and back on and have a look at your posture. Now, don't just look at it. You've got to see it. And have a look at the alignment of your shoulders. Um, is one shoulder sitting up higher than the other? Now have a look at your arms. Does one arm sit out from the body and the other arm's in front? Is one hand sort of swung around in front? All of these things could be indicators of what's going on with your spine or with your shoulder girdle, uh, what's going on through uh, your core, and that may need work done through there. Have a look at the legs. What sort of development do your legs have compared to your upper body? Are they different? Is your upper body more developed than your lower body or vice versa? Does it need to be balanced? Have a look at the positioning of your feet. Just the very angle that you've got your feet on could indicate that you've got weak glutes. Now, with all of those things, I'd also um, suggest have a look at your injury history. We get so focused sometimes on looking at what is the injury that we've got. So, oh, I've got sore shins. I must have bad shins. So 
they'll work on their shins over and over and oh, you've got tight calves, so let's stretch out the calves. But when you get them to um, stand, you'll see that they've got what we call an externally rotated feet, so the feet are going out, out from the body. And what that would may indicate to me is that they've got weakness in their low back and their glutes. So you can massage your calves all you like and ice your shins every day if you want until you address the actual cause of the problem, which I'm suggesting may be low back and glute weakness, you're going to keep getting those shin splints. So don't mix up the symptom with the cause. And quite often that can reveal itself if you're able to look at your body imbalances. Mm, that's a great point. And it's something that I've noticed as I've started to look further into it, that there's a, uh, I guess it's in every part of our, our life really, we start to look at the actual symptoms rather than the cause. We can get so caught up, as you say, doing the massage, but unless you're, um, really attack the the cause. It's not going to go anywhere with that. But well, I, I, the exciting, I, just before you move on from that, Tyson, the exciting thing about that is, you know, sometimes people think that, oh, you know, I'm just going to give my running away. I'm just injury prone. If I haven't got sore shins, it's my knee. If it's not my knee, it's my back. If it's not my back, it's my shoulder. I've just had enough of all these injuries. They are the same injury manifesting at different parts of your body. So it's almost like dominoes. You find the one that's the, the main positive factor here and all the others just fall in line so i'm a big advocate for identifying muscular imbalance and then addressing that and the way to address that is you look at where areas have been maybe overused so too strong and we've got to stretch that area out and look at the places that are weak and we've got to strengthen that so in short strengthen what you stretch stretch what you strengthen Yes, yeah, that's really good advice. And this is one thing I took away from our conversation last time. Like when you, you can go into a really deep analysis, and I remember you saying that the science field, especially around exercise performance, can get so caught down on details that we skip over the simplicity and just the the basic things oh, that you can do well. No, there's so many people out there trying to make themselves sound so much smarter than what they really are. Just break it down, and at, at, at the end of the day, everything is really quite. Look, it, it's trying to find the simplicity in the complexity. Things are complex, definitely, but the solutions are generally quite simple and it just takes a concerted effort over a period of time. And a lot of people just aren't patient enough in uh, in getting that. They want everything in this world as instant. You know, I was driving here today and, you know, I went past and, you know, I can win uh, $20 million tonight and there's an instant um, access to a lottery. Um, and, you know, and a few doors down, they had coffees instant, ready to go. And there's an instant this and that. We don't wait for anything. We've got to download everything. We want an instant return on our money. We want everything. With this, you've got to be patient. And if you've got muscular imbalance, from my experience, it'll take four to six weeks before you even begin to see changes in strength. And if you can get it quicker than that, you, you must be cheating somehow or you've got alien DNA. It's just the way we are. And you spend the four to six weeks making that, you'll start to see the progress. And then after that, the period will, will pick up. It'll become much quicker. But it is worth the investment in time for what you put in there will prevent so many injuries down, down the track. Don't think of it as rehabilitation. Think of it as prehabilitation. Do it before you get injured. Mm, really good point. So, Quinny, I guess when it comes to prevention, this is probably easy to be more specific on than when it comes to treating someone's specific injury uh, that they're dealing with. But I was going to ask you, at the risk of being too general, whether there are any particular um, routines or exercises or treatments that you'd recommend people who, even if they are fine, could do on a, a daily or weekly basis that are going to stop the, the likelihood that you know these uh, muscular imbalances will come mm -hmm. up, besides the photos um, besides the sort of self-assessment, like where would you recommend someone to start for treating something like that or preventing something, I should say? Yeah, well, most of the people that I see uh, come to me uh, with, with injury-based stuff. A lot of it comes around uh, low back and glutes. So we do a lot of strengthening work in and around the um, glutes and it's a pretty simple routine. In fact, it's so simple it's boring, but it is effective. Now, if people are interested in getting that, I'm more than happy to provide that to them free of charge. All they need to do is go to, and this is a, a commercial plug now, but all I've got to do is go to my website at Quinn Elite Sports and uh, uh, email me through the, the link there and say they heard me on the podcast and they'd like to get the hip control routine free of charge. 
and I'll send them the hip control routine to get them going. I know that it works, and if that can help them, then be my guest. I'll uh, I'll send it out to you. So oh, I think that is that is one one thing to do. The other thing is don't consider that oh well, I'm a distance runner. We don't do strength. Well, you do do strength because without strength you couldn't stand up, and you can improve your performance with strength work. You are not going to turn into some freak on a men's fitness magazine that looks like they've been uh, eating steroids for breakfast, lunch and dinner. It's not going to happen. Uh, just work the, the program prescribed for you from someone who knows what they're doing and go for symmetry where we go for left is equal to right and upper equal to lower. Work the muscles that need to be worked, as I said before, strengthen and stretch. The other thing that I would recommend, uh, and I've been a big supporter of it for many years, is Pilates. And Pilates is such a functional way to get strong. I would say, if, if you've got, a, got the opportunity or the choice, there's Pilates where you can just go to someone who's setting up a Pilates studio, or I would go to clinical Pilates. They're going to be a physiotherapist and they're going to be trained in movement. If you've got a, uh, an injury profile or a history, then I'd be going to that physio and saying, well, look, I've got X, Y, Z, and uh, um, I heard this guy on a, on a block once say that, you know, I should try Pilates. Well, I reckon do that. But again, I'd say, understand that it's going to be a six-week commitment from you to do that. And that in itself becomes your strength and stretching mobility program all rolled up into one. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm so glad you touched on the, um, the commitment that you need to take for it to see any results because I think uh, I, I couldn't help but, but think as you were speaking, I had a friend a few months ago who had lost a couple of family members in a short space of time and he was just dealing with what he thought was, um, he, he just started to assume that he had depression and he, he went into a psychologist and the psychologist said, yep, you're ticking every box, you need to go on an antidepressant if you want to feel better. And mm. he thought, man, it's just a, it was such a, a quick turnaround in a space of a 40-minute session to leave and be told they need to be on something like that to treat it. He said uh, he, he left and obviously there's, there's cases where, you know, medication is really good treatment for certain things like that. But he said for him it just didn't quite gel and it, he, he thought he needed to take a, a longer approach um, uh, to just dealing with the grief that he thought he was suffering. And, and you know, six to nine months later, he said he feels as, as, as good as new again. You can look back and go, okay, it just needed time. It needed patience. I needed family. I needed, it was quite a holistic approach that he felt mm. like he needed rather than just to swallow a tablet and, um, you know, treat the, treat the symptoms and forget about what's actually caused it. So, um, well, I think the, the other thing there, the, the word that you use in there is holistic. And look at the whole whole issue. One of the things I it's a generalisation, but you talk about endurance athletes, regardless of the modality, they tend to be very patient, and uh, you know they they're not afraid to do the same thing con- consistently and over a period of time. And that's what they'd have to do here. One of the things again is a as a generalisation, but I'll back myself in is that a lot of uh, endurance type athletes shy away from things like strength work because it is so foreign and it's something that they don't do and they're worried they're going to get big and get heavy. It's, it's actually the simplest part. Like, Take it from someone that's been involved in this industry for a very long time, that these um, the modality of, of prescribing strength training is perhaps the easiest aspect of the whole thing if you've got a runner in there. It, you just follow the logical sequence of volume and intensity, a number of repetitions and recovery. And if you've got someone there that can help you with those sort of things, it'll just click nicely into the program and ultimately leave you being a better a better runner. Um, uh, distance runners have been doing strength work for years and it's called hills. So running hills is strength work and that's fantastic. But if you've got underlying pathology, so you've got weaknesses and deficiencies there, all you're doing is reinforcing that strength over and over and over in a strength setting. So by going into a gym environment, you can address those deficiencies. Even the hills are going to become better. So I can't stress more than than I am. Try something different. Include a modality that is foreign to you, but it's going to improve your performance. Yeah, no, really good, Quinny. I actually, I'm throwing a few of my friends under the bus today, but one that just came to mind as you spoke about the hill repetitions there was I had a, a friend Sean who 
he was almost, you would call him a bodybuilder for a few years. He was a big boy, he had a big set of pecs, massive biceps. And uh, about two years ago, he was playing tennis and um, he was just doing a, yeah, his average serve. And as he served the ball, um, he heard a massive crap come from his upper arm. Um, he felt like he'd just been whacked. And um, the, I guess to the best of their ability, the doctor said, look, it looks like that um, your, your muscle has just developed such strength that it's, it's overcompensated the strength of your mm-hmm. bone. And as you've gone mm. to surf, that, that little inefficiency um, uh, has, uh, I guess, overpowered it and snapped that particular thing. So is that what you're speaking about? That constant strengthening of a muscle um, can just potentially cause disaster if there are those Yeah, underlying possibly, possibly not as uh, drastic as your tennis um, friend. And you, as you say, your body will just find a way. And that if you keep doing it over and over, then it's stronger in that. Uh, one of the um, ways that I will identify an imbalance also uh, is to get an athlete to tow a sled. So it's a running sled. And they put uh, just a light weight, usually about 10% of your body weight. So it's not heavy. If you're weighing 80 kilos, you're only going to put 8 10 kilos, say, weight on the back of the sled. But just get them to run and watch the sled. The sled will be either going straight in a line, which means they've got good symmetry, but if the sled's moving from side to side, it's going to show you they've got muscle imbalance. You'll both, you'll see the sled mirrors the movement of their feet and the show efficiency of the individual. So look for the signs what you can. They've been in front of you all the time. Those people say doing hills or doing runs. Your inefficiencies have been there, but what what a person like me as an exercise physiologist would look at and say, oh, it's a bit inefficient. People just write it off. Oh, that's just the way I am, you know. Uh, or that's my trademark. That's that's how I am, you know. For some people, your trademark, you know, you lurching around the track is like an advertisement to go home and burn your running shoes. It's that bad, you know. <laughs> you can address it. You can fix it if you put in the work. Yeah, yeah. Now that's really good advice, Quinny, and something I know is just going to strike a chord because it is being having been involved in the running scene at uh, you know a fairly elite level. Of, of, I know firsthand that. The strength training part of it and the, the the stretch training part of it was never really something that I was thought to focus on. It wasn't until the five years after since I've left running that I've realised how much of a benefit that can be to so many athletes. But Quinny, at the risk of uh, putting you on the spot, I was just curious mm-hmm. to know if there were certain injuries that um, you see more than others, or if there's particular things that stand out to you when it comes to you know lack of mobility and when, when it comes to just a lack of symmetry in the body. It, a, a distance runners. Um, from your perspective, more culprits of it than the shorter uh, distance athletes when they come to see you, or is it just something that well, athletes of no, all if levels? You had, if you had to put them, if you had to put them into buckets, and like, there's always differences around this, but your endurance athletes tend to be more people that are going to come to you with bony related injuries, so stress fractures and and uh, you know that, that tendonitis type of things. Your more explosive, dynamic athletes are going to be people who come to you with muscular issues so they've torn a hamstring or they've done their quad or something like that it doesn't mean they can't get uh, either or but uh, no that that tends to be be the difference but when you talk about endurance athletes they're going to be overuse and if you've got injuries it invariably comes down to you know just a few things and again make the complex simple the simple one is you're doing too much it's too much load so you know, if you're doing too much well back off um, but you've still got to get the result. Now, it could also be your mechanics. So the technical model is is not right. Um, and the other one could be that you're just not taking enough recovery. So you're not recovering from the previous thing or and or you're doing the same thing too repetitively. So change the stimulus in and around the body. But invariably, it comes around from load and lack of recovery and poor mechanics. They'd be three big rocks that I'd go after when I'm identifying uh, what's going on with the person getting injured. And, you know, you can sit down and say, well, what are you doing um, Monday through Sunday for your training? How many Ks are you running? And, you know, whatever the load is, that's what the load is. But how is that spaced out? Is there enough time in there for recovery? Then I'd look at, well, what's your mechanics of movement like? What are you actually doing? And then you put them all together and hopefully you can say, well, this is likely why you're getting that injury. Let's go after that and fix it. And, you know, in a lot of times it's going to come down to your mechanics. Yeah, sure. Well, last time we spoke, we uh, spoke a little bit about the rate of perceived exertion, just that simple um, skill or simple sort of reflection that you did with athletes as you're going through a training session, just to get them to rate how that session went in terms of effort on a scale of 1 to 10. And I was going to ask, is there any way that 
someone who's new to distance running or might not be uh, well enough in tune with their body to say, oh, yeah, I actually am overtraining. I'm not recovering really well. Uh, besides uh, reflection activity like that, how could someone who is trying to just figure out if they are doing too much find that out? Well, I, I really rate greater percentage exertion. So using a scale like RPE has been shown in study after study to be an effective means of identifying injuries before they become an injury. But it requires something that's very difficult sometimes to people to get their heads around, particularly athletes, no matter what the level is. And it's the concept of honesty and self-honesty and listening to your own body and saying, yeah, well, this is where I'm at. So look, you go for your run, you give yourself a 15-minute break at the end of it, and then you look at your chart and you rate how that run feels. Don't worry about what the time was. Don't worry about how far you went. How did you feel after that? Then you worry about the time that you were going and you multiply the time by what you felt like and you graph that over time. You will start to see patterns emerging and you'll start to see that a particular session is harder for your body. That means you need more recovery after that. Learn. Listen to your body. And the RPE is a great tool for doing that. And if you don't listen to your body, your body's going to make you listen to it because it's called an injury and it says, well, get stuffed. You're now broken down. I'm taking the rest that you didn't give me. And it's now become a two months where you sit around saying, poor bugger me. And why does this always happen to me? It's because you don't listen to your body. Yeah. So with the RPE forms at the end, do you, uh, um, so you give yourself a score out of 10 and then you're also paying attention to things like hydration and, and just like your daily or your lifestyle yeah, well, stress that uh, might be. Uh, RPE doesn't necessarily relate to things like hydration. RPE is just looking at how hard you found the session to be and you multiply it by the duration of that activity. So it just gives you a number. So all you're doing is dealing with numbers and you can follow that over time. As a general guide, you know, you'd have two or three sessions coming up and then one coming down to let your body recover. When you talk about aspects like uh, hydration or nutrition, well, then they're coming in to enable you, well, let's say to recover from a session, but also to be prepared. If you're dehydrated going into a session, well, that's going to have an impact on your performance, particularly if you're a, a longer distance runner, that's going to have impact on muscle function eventually as you're going. But more for sport, team sports, if you're in an endurance sport, it has impact on your decision-making and uh, and that type of thing. So that's more of a worry. Like when I was involved with AFL, we used to uh, take particular note of players' hydration status uh, pre- and post-sessions. So you can do that by... Um, basically looking at the colour of your urine but if you're on a multivitamin tablet it's going to glow like a nuclear fallout so that can be a bit of a, uh, a misnomer but generally speaking the darker your urine the more dehydrated you are. If you want to know you can buy things called a dipstick from the chemist and you just dip it in there and it gives you a reading and it tells you what state of hydration you are. Once you know that you can then tell from your weight and if you um, if you're running and you lose a kilo, that's equal to a litre of fluid when you're, that you need to rehydrate with. And I would recommend, based on the studies that we've done in this area, that if you did lose a litre or a kilo in a run, then you would replenish that with one and a half litres um, after to get yourself back into what we call homeostasis or into balance. Um, and that sounds like a lot. But remember, it's not just guzzling out of a bottle. It can be uh, the food that you eat. So watermelon is very high in water, funnily enough. Uh, you can have chicken noodle soup um, and so on. So, And it's spread out over the course of that day. It actually doesn't take long to be able to re re um, return what you've lost. And your body will thank you for it going forward. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. So it doesn't necessarily just have to be black and white. All right, we're drinking water, we're drinking Powerade. We're <laughs> you well, funnily, that. funnily enough, just, just on that, it's just drinking water can actually not be that good because it actually stimulates your kidney to go to the toilet. So if you're just drinking water, you'll weed that out, which ironically will put you into a state of uh, dehydration. We want to get you back into a hydrated state of what we call euhydrated. So we want to get you back into that. So um, a salted water, that's where things like um, Powerade and Gatorade and these things, they've got the commercial market covered because it's got salts and electrolytes and sugars in there. But you don't want to be having that as your drink of choice on a daily basis. I mean, it's okay after an event or during an event to, to have the commercially made drinks like that. But having uh, fluid, you need something that the cells can 
uptake and hold on to the fluid, I'd be recommending they put a squeeze of lemon juice into that uh, into that water to help um, hang on to the, and hang on to the fluid. And you should try to avoid as much as possible a lot of the diuretic. So um, coffee is a diuretic. So that'll actually make you go to the toilet more. Having a, a Coke, uh, it might be high sugar, but it's also going to act as a bit of a diuretic for you. And, you know, there's a host of other things. And if you're drinking things like um, Diet Coke and, uh, uh, you know, Coke Zero, these sort of things, understand that that also, it may, may not have calories, but it is going to have an insulin spike. So you're going to get all these other ramifications around your nutrition. But it also is now being shown to have impact on your gut flora. So that's your actual gut health. Ultimately, that's going to impact on your ability to recover. So at the end of the day, you know, if you keep cutting corners with your recovery, you're going to end up going around and around in corners, uh, in circles. It's You just stick to your basic stuff. I'd be putting water with lemon juice to help the cells uptake. I'd be using, um, on a sporadic basis, your commercial-grade um, drinks like Gatorade and... You know, and look at foods where you can incorporate fluid into that, which is going to have salts and, and whatever in there. And a classic example would be chicken noodle soup, salty, and it's got carbohydrates with the noodles and so on. And then you look at, well, what supplements can I take here to, if I'm falling short in some vitamin mineral here, that's when you look at your supplements. And your doctor or um, uh, dietitian is going to be able to advise you after you know, go to your chest and blood and whatever. What uh, what needs to be done there? Um, interestingly, I uh, had a, a phone hookup a Zoom meeting last week with my squad of athletes, and we were able to get in uh, Usain Bolt's strength and conditioning coach. Um, he came in uh, Leroy Gray to talk to my athletes about the sort of things that they do with uh, one of the greatest squads in the world, they all do a blood test and the doctor then uh, decides from that what type of uh, nutrition they should be having and what uh, what are the best um, uh, supplements, minerals, what have you, that they, that whole group needs based upon their uh, blood type and that also impacts on the training load that they have. It's an area that I haven't really done much in but I'm... Uh, I'm interested to have a bit more of a look at that. And so if anyone's listening to this and, you know, that floats your boat, I'd love to hear from you and uh, let's see if we can find out a little bit more about that area. I'll tell you what, it, it certainly floats my boat, so I hope someone reaches out to you and, uh, and talks mm. a little bit more about that. So uh, when it comes to things like supplements and diet, I know it's it's funny with the internet, Quinny, because there's so much great information out there, but there's also much so much bro science which just get published and um, uh, one of the things that I've heard a lot of talk about and um, I I read a little bit about nutrition and diet and um, uh, definitely no expert or dietitian but I'm fascinated by um, the the opinion that uh, you know when it comes to things like fruits and replacing your your liquids through foods uh, a lot of people at the moment are talking about the I want to be careful because of the sugar content which is in watermelon and in apples and in you know your, your fruits that up until recently were considered just purely healthy. Um, but what are your thoughts on on that? Is that something that we need to be careful of when it comes to you know how much we're consuming, or is it is, it, is the sugar in fruit mixed with the fibre when it's being digested just helping the you know the sugars be used more effectively? Absolutely, and it's a different type of sugar too. It's the refined sugars that you really need to be careful of. There's no doubt that the accumulation of, uh, you know, sugars in, in, uh, in our diet is a big issue with obesity in the Western world. But when you start talking about avoiding watermelon because of the sugar in it, um, you know, it's a, it's a scary world. It's not, the, <laughs> it's not the sugar in a watermelon that you're worried about. It's the can of Coke and it's the Mars yeah. bar that you had, you know, before the watermelon. Um, and I think we get sucked into, you know, I don't want to be banging on as an anti-Coke Zero um, person, but, you know, it, it, people think a balanced diet now is, you know, I'm going to have a hamburger with a Coke Zero because then it's balanced. I've got a bit of fat and there's no sugar there, so I'm, I'm in balance. <laughs> no, the only thing in balance is your brain. No, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And your body actually needs sugars to function properly, particularly brain function. So you need sugars. So getting sugars from uh, fruits and vegetables is actually a very sensible way to go about it. Um, and look, it's a boring old world if you, you're going around on an anti-sugar 
crusade, but try to avoid refined um, um, foods such as white sugar as much as you can. I think there's been enough there that, you know, one of the leading um, exponents in this area is a doctor I used to work with down in Melbourne, Olympic Park Sports Snacking, and uh, he's uh, world regarded now on uh, the work he's done in and around uh, sugar and its impact on performance and health. So, you know, if people are sort of interested in this area, I'd be uh, uh, Googling Peter Brookner and see the sort of things that you can find in and around that. But I don't think it's going to shock anybody now um, to know that. I, I try to, you know, if my athletes are saying, you know, how do I know what I'm going to eat? If you're looking at a label and it's got uh, sugar as the first ingredient, then I'm saying to you, no, put that one back down. If you're looking at an ingredient list on a package and it's got numbers on it, put it back down. They put numbers there because the word's so long no one can pronounce it. It's probably made up <laughs> of chemicals. They put the thing down. You know, two simple things. If it's sugar's first and it's got numbers in it, put it away. You don't need it. Yeah. Um, and also, I guess this goes back to uh, just the power of the voices and the power of the, the dollars that some of these companies can you know, put into market their product. But supplements is obviously a huge industry at the moment. And uh, I know a lot of people who are taking supplements because of the impact it has. But um, uh, by the sound of it, Leroy, in the training that he did with Usain Bolt and the team, it sounded like it was a more targeted, specific approach or a specific oh, use of those stuff. It's just not a generic one-size-fits-all here, take this supplement because we say it's good. No, no, exactly. I think you've got to be also... Look, I don't mean to be um, flippant about the whole thing, but I can recall um, a patient at one point that had a... Um, uh, certainly looking at... Um, um, they had a, a, f- a few issues in and around... Um, numbness so they had numbness in, in their legs and sort of you know looking at all of these things around you know well, is it your mechanics or you know you're doing too much load and you know if you've got compression on your spine if there's a discogenic issue going on through there a blood test was called for and it turned out that the individual actually had um, a toxicity of vitamin D so the vitamin D was actually the cause of this numbness in the legs Cut the vitamin D out of the, you know, um, exuberant uh, supplementation program. Oh, the number for the legs disappeared. So again, you've got to sit in there, exclude likely things, just the most logical thing, and then just keep working down your list. But again, you know, this whole thing of uh, looking at individual and what their diet is and all these sort of things, well, that can tell you an awful lot about uh, where they are. And, uh, you know, it can be as simple as that. Mm. I've been fascinated by uh, one of the studies National Geographic did a couple of years ago. I think there's books and recipe books and everything just being printed on the subject. Uh, you might have heard of the, the, the blue zones, they, they call them, the oldest, healthiest people in the world, healthiest in terms of uh, you know drug-free and they're, they're the most centenary, uh, centenarians per, well, I can't remember the actual measurement, but in pretty much the, mm. per capita in that country, there was so many healthy people over the age of 100, and they look at the lifestyle factors of these people, and what was interesting to me was um, uh, in terms of their lifestyle, there was no gym memberships, there was no Powerade, there was no supplements. It was just good, healthy, organic food with a you know a natural exercise, which is you know uh, not super weight bearing or putting too much pressure on their heart over a long term period of time. And it was just it was fascinating to me to hear the guys who did the study speak about how simple it really was. And I thought um, uh, as I was preparing to chat to you, it, it just sort of rang through my ears from. Uh, yes, uh, complexity, things are complex and you can boil them down to simplicity and it's funny, it's just that, hey, eat your vegetables, eat your fruit, um, don't uh, just make me- uh, meat your, your main portion of three meals a your day. Um, mm. it's, uh, it really blows my mind how far away we can get from just the things that we know are good for us because we're trying to find that shortcut to success, maybe for a lack of a better term to explain it. Yeah, I think we've also, we've become quite a comfortable society and, you know, what used to be a treat day, I can remember, you know, as a young kid, you know, God, and it's getting a fair while ago now, but, you know, we used to get a treat, you know, on a Friday afternoon and, you know, mum would put us off and we'd get five cents, I think, to go and buy a paddle pop. And, you know, we couldn't wait for Friday, it wasn't because school was finishing, so we're going to get a chocolate paddle pop. And, uh, you know, that was a treat. Well, now those treats are available and they're in the fridge at home. You can go and get one or two every other night and most 
most people are having ice cream at the end of a meal or whatever they might be going to do. And, you know, we're saying things like, oh, you know, I just need to exercise more. You know, if you don't have, you know, a, a, a slow, slow metabolism, you've got an overactive jaw. You know, stop mm. eating so much food. <laughs> we overeat and undermove. And, you know, it's, it's quite simple in most cases. Of course, there's exceptions to that. But we indulge and we give ourselves the Friday treat every other day of the week now. And, you know, we, there's so much in terms of the food that we eat that's, you know, got additives and uh, um, other, other issues with it, like we've just been talking about sugar. And we generally eat too much. And it just comes down to simple things like that. And, you just keep it simple. But most people you talk to, they already know. Everybody knows whether they should eat that or shouldn't eat that. We choose to eat it. And we are a reflection of um, how we live. Mm. I remember 2015, I went through uh, through the Himalayas for a month just on a, a big trek. And one of the things that stood out to me was one of the guys I was hiking with had a couple of Mars bars in his bag. And there were a couple of little local kids came up to him and were just sort of sitting around there having a bit of fun. And he said, here, here's a little treat for you. And he took out the Mars bar and gave it to this, uh, probably no older than seven-year-old Nepalese kid. And he took one bite and it pretty much spat it out. He was just disgusted by how much uh, sugar and how sweet it was. But for us, we were still looking at him like, oh, my gosh, like, don't you appreciate how good a treat this is? But in that part mm. of the world, not only are people just not morbidly obese, but they just don't have an appreciation or appreciation uh, is the wrong word. They don't have a taste for that additive. It's interesting you say that because a lot of the artificial sweetness which we've got in those sort of things and, and so on, that actually has heightened our uh, or de- desensitised our um, taste for sugar. So they're super sweet now and yet our bodies are looking for that now. You've become addicted to it. Whereas kids like those Nepalese, they haven't had it before. So that sweet taste is just such a, a foreign thing. I'm, I'm fortunate in my, my squad that I coach. I've got three refugees in my squad. And the two boys are absolutely ripped. You know, they're, they're like the cover of a male model magazine. You know, they haven't got a six-pack, it's a 12-pack. <laughs> and, you know, they would no sooner eat a chocolate bar or, or uh, a soft drink or go to McDonald's than, uh, you know, that I would uh, uh, go to the moon. It's just not in their consciousness. They've never had that. And when they do eat it, they don't actually like it. So, you know, we've just got ourselves accustomed to that and it's a matter of changing changing our habits. And it takes time to change habit, but the, uh, a habit change comes from a consciousness, a decision that I'm, I want something different. And so people have to do that first. It's not just a matter of, uh, oh, well, I won't do that today. It's not a sometime thing. It's an all-time thing. That's mm. the- yeah, that's really good. I was looking at your Instagram page actually before I, I called you, and I know the guys that you're speaking to. You're not exaggerating when you say 12 pack because that was some one of them who was doing some resistance work with. It looked like a little theraband or some technique work. And man, I tell you, his he, six pack almost poked me in the eye from the other side of the phone. It was, it was yeah, pretty yeah. Quinny, I said uh, it would only uh, take you uh, about an hour for this chat, so I'm not going to go over that. But I just wanted to finish off by asking you a question because last time. Yeah, it had me all curious. I was looking at those aura rings and um, doing a little mm. bit of research into the science behind that. But I was just curious to know what you're fascinated by at the moment. Anything on the uh, radar that you're interested in or you, you think we're going to be looking at in a lot more detail over the next few years that you know people might be able to scope out and have a look at? I think that the sleep thing is still uh, an area that we've got to learn more about. And I think the impact of uh, the screens you know, the fact that we're spending so much time in front of computer screens is uh, impacting on our... And not necessarily not getting sleep, but I think it's the quality of sleep that uh, that we're not getting. I think that that's an area that we're still going to be going down. And, look, it's quite trendy at the moment, but I still don't think we know uh, nearly enough about it. And it's to do with um, our gut health and how the gut... Is um, we actually crave the foods because we've become accustomed to it. I think they should be things a lot today, but we're craving those things or coming to it. I think we're going to have to learn a lot more about our gut health and the way our body responds to it. And the crisis we're currently going through, this COVID crisis and the illness that we've got, I'm not suggesting this is going to be the um, the cure for that. But not even thinking that to be quite frank, but the whole thing about our own personal health and 
uh, anti-inflammatory properties of foods. I think that's our our holy grail going forward. So I think it's about anti-inflammatory foods. I think it's about gut health. And I think it's about recovery as in sleep. I think those three things are going to move our training forward. And the last area that I've been fascinated in for years is understanding the power of the nervous system, that the nerves actually innovate the muscle. And by being able to train neurally, we're going to have performances beyond that which we've even dreamt of before going forward in terms of uh, what we can do. I think we're only scratching the surface in the potential of the human body, both from a mental and physical uh, perspective. It's an interesting journey to be on, but uh, I'll be uh, trying to look at those sort of things. And of course, I've already let the cat out of the bag. I'm becoming more interested in uh, being able to create a training program based on a person's DNA, which we can look at through a blood test. I reckon that would be a fascinating thing to have a closer look at. Yeah, that's really... I think you mentioned that in the podcast we had last time. You were speaking about how uh, you've got a really good tolerance for certain carbohydrates and things. I, I think I'm... I hope I'm not misquoting you, but I remember we were speaking about your, your heritage or where your family origins are from mm. and how an Irish person might have a, a stronger capacity to be able to use you know, potatoes and carbohydrates mm. as a more effective uh, form of fuel than for someone in a more Mediterranean place. Oh, look, I, I think that there's no doubt... But, you know, different uh, uh, cultures and different uh, nationalities, have, you've got a, uh, an ability to do different things or you're, you're more skilled at doing different things. I, I look at these African boys that I'm coaching and their pelvis, as I said, are on this anterior tilt. To me, they're like made for speed. That, that pelvic tilt is such a natural advantage for running at top speed. Is it any surprise that some of the fastest people in history have all been of African descent. And then we did this study, as I was saying, with my PhD students at the Giants in Lael Kassam and Andrew Sharp, the, the actual studies. But we were looking at visual acuity and could you measure that? So when I came up here to Sydney, we trying to find talent in schools. Kids weren't interested in playing AFL. They didn't even know how to spell AFL. So <laughs> when they were there trying to get you into the sport and they couldn't care less. So I had to find a different way. And so if I went out there and I'm measuring sprint speed or endurance or their explosive jump height and all those things, they were just generic tests that everybody was doing. So we were identifying them and then they'd go off and play rugby league or rugby union or basketball or whatever. I was trying to get them into AFL. We came across these glasses that measure the movement of your eyes, so your visual acuity, and through that visual acuity could measure your potential for decision-making. So I was able to identify by looking at our best players at the Giants, so you know, a Jeremy Cameron or a Toby Green or a Stephen Canelio, we could look at their visual movement patterns as an elite AFL player, and we could identify a kid that was living in the western suburb of Sydney that didn't know anything about AFL and had similar visual search patterns as Jeremy Cameron. So why wouldn't you identify that kid and bring them into a program and skill them through, which is precisely what we've been trying to do uh, with the AFL here in Sydney with the programs that we had with the academy at uh, GWS Giants. Now, as an aside from that, and uh, nothing's published on it, but what we found from doing this was the Indigenous population, and there's, um, uh, there's more Indigenous people living in Western Sydney than there are in the whole of the Northern Territory and South Australia combined, just as an aside. So what we found from uh, testing a lot of the kids out there, the Indigenous kids, is that their visual search, like their, the scope, they could see far more area in mm. their search pattern than a European descended person. Now, what that means, well, I think I know what it means, but when I look at some of the stars that I've worked with in the AFL over the past uh, uh, 20 years, you know, the one that springs to mind is uh, Michael Long. Look, he just seemed to have more time and space. He just seemed to know what was going on. It's like everything slowed down around him and he could see things that others couldn't see. Well, I reckon I know why. From a, a genetic um, predisposition, he had better visual acuity than everybody else around him. He could see things literally and bigger areas than the other 
And uh, I think that's a fascinating area to be uh, going into. And right in some way, I think JSL leading the way with that, particularly the Giants, but Australia leading the way. And I think uh, that's going to have ramifications for sports like, uh, well, particularly soccer and basketball on the international stage once they catch up and know what we're doing. Yeah, who knows where that goes to. But, you know, I, I don't have any doubt about the fact that uh, different cultures have got um, uh, their predisposed to have uh, strengths in particular areas. Yeah, man, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Quinny. I tell you what, I'll leave you with about 15 dot points on what I have to go on and just learn a little, <laughs> a little bit more about it. <laughs> man, thanks so much for making the time again. I, My uh, pleasure. I, no, I great definitely appreciate it. No worries at all. Have a great day and I uh, look forward to talking to you again. Hey, sounds great, Quinny. Thanks, Take care. Awesome. 